I just watched an inspiring movie, and that feeling, this feeling is so good. Welcome to this episode of Cafe Ribbit. It is the first musical guest episode, and a very special one at that, Michael Hudson Casanova, an amazing musician. He released his album Echoes of Thought in 2021, and we're going to hear about that process today. So when I am actually interviewing someone that I know, I like to say how we got to know each other um, versus just random people on the street. Sure. So I'll tell the story really quickly. Great. Um, So I was interested in learning how to play saxophone and I messaged this music teacher in my area named Michael to see if he thought my uh, Craigslist uh, saxophones were high quality enough to buy and you were giving the good advice of like yes that's a good model but you never really know um Mm -hmm. because it's a used instrument um so if you can get it checked out and i just (laughs) didn't really have the energy or know how to do that so you just went i ended up yeah (laughs) (laughs) i bought one that was an hour train ride away for almost a thousand dollars a japanese uh yamaha and then i said okay i got it um would you actually be interested in exchanging my video production skills for your music lessons and do you remember what you said well at first i know i said no (laughs) (laughs) because i thought you were actually offering to teach me production skills or media skills uh but then uh a couple days went by and I, i realized i kind of misunderstood um, mm-hmm. and, and you were going to offer, um, your services to me. And then I said, Oh, okay. You know what? That could be cool because I have a couple of projects in mind that, that would really benefit from some skills like that. So then we did it and it ended up being really great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So if anyone listening is thinking about learning an instrument, but you have no money for music lessons, but some other skill, just reach out to a musician. You never know. Yeah, skill trading is uh, is actually a really cool thing. And the latest musical news with you is releasing your debut album, Echoes of Thought, October 1st, 2021? Yeah, that's right. Um, that's my first album as a leader, um, which means my name's on the cover. <laughs> uh-huh. um, that music was recorded in January of 2021 at the Gradwell House, which is a recording studio in Haddon Heights, New Jersey. Um, I had this great engineer who does a lot of projects in Philadelphia named John Anthony, um, a producer who was actually an old teacher of mine at Temple University, that's Norman David, um, and my sextet, my six-piece band, um, three horns, myself on saxophone, and then uh, trumpet and trombone, and then a, a standard 
I would say standard rhythm section, which is piano based drums. Uh, and we re recorded everything mostly live, which means everybody was tracking at the same time. It wasn't like layered, like bass first or piano uh, first or, um, but yeah, it was all, uh, live performing, um, with some sound isolation. So there is room for editing. I imagine that, uh, at least to my taste would be a much less painful process to record it all together rather than separate tracks, because at least with creating visual art, if you create a bunch of different, literally layers too, like, uh, multiple drawings, maybe a background color, you can just spend hours endlessly tweaking each layer right. to blend with each other. Right. That's a great point. And that happens in the music world too. It really depends on what kind of music you're trying to make and what kind of product you're trying to put out. Pretty much all popular music you hear today is recorded track by track. Um, mm. They'll do a, a million takes of the vocals, a million takes of piano, um, and then pick the best ones, cut it up, and and put out the best product. But that's kind of the cool thing about um, how jazz has always been and where most recorded jazz is still at is that um, so much of the music is improvised, and so much of that improvisation depends on um, playing in real time with other people. You know, it's not mm -hmm. just yourself improvising. It's a group effort, uh, group improvisation uh, in some respects. So that's where the live recording um, is really useful is if you want that kind of sound. Yeah. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but I was wondering as I was watching some of your performances on YouTube with both your sextet and other groups, if playing jazz in a band influences how you converse with other people, I guess because you're developing amazing listening skills and also knowing when to come in yourself, do you ever think about how your music playing translates to conversation? I, I do think about that a little bit and, um, <laughs> I don't consider myself a great conversationalist. <laughs> um, You're doing amazing so far. Well, thanks. <laughs> um, I consider myself a much better improviser in terms of music than I am, um, in conversation or, or with people or maybe in life in general. <laughs> mm. But, um, yeah, I have thought about that. Uh, and you know, I often find myself thinking like, um, not just in terms of improvisation, but in many aspects of music, um, how well the things that I'm learning from music could transfer over to other aspects in my life. Like my, my practice routine, um, has a certain structure, uh, and I should, I should really, you know, structure my day more like I'd structure a practice routine that involves some mm. kind of warm up or some kind of, um, exercise, uh, and improvisation, which is a huge part of what I do, how important that is in life. Um, so that, you know, when something crazy happens, I can respond to it in a way that makes sense in the moment. 
Um, so yeah, I think about that. I don't know how good I am at implementing those things, but I think about it a lot. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Totally. This is a bit of a warm up to kind of a fun prompt, maybe depressing if you're me. But in three words, can you describe your current stage of life as an artist? So when I say three words, like mine could be, this is really improvised. I haven't planned this. Okay. Um, mine would be anxious, hmm. excited, and worried. <laughs> anxious um, and worried, huh? <laughs> anxious, excited, and worried. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely relate to those feelings uh, around my art. And the first word that came to mind for me uh, was transitional. Um, mm. I feel like I'm in a transitional period. Um, and two other words. Uh, I think I'm also excited, um, especially because I just booked some things for the summer. Um, some new music, uh, and I'm, I've been workshopping with some new music with some new people. So I'm really excited about that and um, confused. <laughs> oh, elaborate on that one. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I feel like confused kind of goes with the transitional period because, um, you know, I sit down with the horn and I don't always know where to start. Um, I don't know, you know, part of me lately has been feeling a bit bored with my usual usual routine, which um, I take from my college years that involves a lot of scales and long tones. And I feel like I, I need to adapt that to where I'm at now. Um, like mm. I, I know I still need to play scales and I still need to play long tones, but but I want to do them in a more improvised way. I want to do them in a, in a different way than the ways I've been doing them for the past, say five or six years. Um, and I don't know what that way is yet. And I don't know what way is going to make me better. What way is going to make me improve? Those are the, some of the things I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, when I practice, um, yeah. So a bit confused, not necessarily in a bad way, but, but confused. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, I guess it's the feeling that tells you something needs to change. Yes, absolutely. Which I think is really important for us as artists. Um, I think we need to change change the way we um, – or change our process often. Um, changing our process will change the product, you know. The way we, we practice or the way we perform or the way we – uh, even think about like business things like booking gigs or um, booking clients, you know, um, change makes things sustainable for us. Yeah, I would throw in another adjective for me also starting a freelance art business. Um, I guess I would do confusion too because uh, so much of the business side of trying to market yourself uh feels like a little bit sellout or i imagine people i went to school with like scoffing at me hmm. um 
for, yeah, I guess turning my art into a product, which they probably wouldn't judge me for, but it just feels unnatural after just making art for art's sake for so long. Right. Right. I, I kind of feel like in many ways I've come at that from a different direction than you because Mm. my teacher in high school who really inspired me to start taking music seriously, um, was like a business guy. Uh, Ah. he, kind of taught me with the purpose, not necessarily of grooming me for something specific, although maybe it felt that way sometimes, but, um, (laughs) but with the, the idea of, um, like, yeah, you need to be able to do this, 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 and this on your instruments if you want to work. Um, Uh, that's kind of, that's the culture in music, uh, for better or worse. Um, not every music, but definitely the avenue that, that I was exposed to at an early age. Uh, and I feel like I've, uh, I've needed to work really hard to let go of that so that I can create art for art's sake, or as, uh, as I prefer to think of it, uh, Stephen Pressfield's quote from his book, the war of art, art, art for life's sake. I like that better. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. I've read the book, but, uh, I didn't remember that. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's toward the end. Um, but yeah, I love that book. Maybe I didn't finish it. <laughs> <laughs> I need to reread that. It's a, it's a quick read, but I haven't done it in years. If you like Cafe Ribbit and you want to support us, please subscribe to the newsletter at caferibbit.com. You'll get two podcast interviews per month one man-on-the-street interview, and one musician interview. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You'll get more voice cracks just like that one. If Echoes of Thought, it was five months ago now, so maybe your quote-unquote voice has changed since then, or your message, but if echoes of thought represents your current voice, can you describe the process of finding that voice? Yeah. So a big part of the process of finding that voice was actually working with that specific band. Um, and writing with those players in mind and that configuration in mind. Um, so it's funny that bands, I'm going to talk about the band a little bit, Elliot build on trumpet and Stephen Perry on the drums. Um, they're two of my oldest friends and oldest musical collaborators. We've been making music together since our early college days. Um, so like 10 years now. Um, so really knowing them well and trusting them a lot with any music I would write, um, because they, they've played so much of my music over the years um and we played so much other music together over the years that that was a specific thing and then the other three people in the band nick on trombone sandy on bass and lucas on piano they were new philly musicians that um i 
I didn't know all that well yet. Um, mm-hmm. Like we were becoming friends pretty quickly, but I, I yeah, didn't I was have say with Sandy. <laughs> I thought you guys had been friends for yeah since kindergarten or something. Yeah, <laughs> San- Sandy uh, has has that way about him where he has uh, he is a great friend of mine, um, but he also has many many great friends because he's just a, a great person to be friends with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, those three players were, uh, I didn't know them as well musically. Um, but I feel like, you know, from being around the Philly scene and knowing how they fit into the Philly scene a little bit, I kind of knew how they were as players a little bit and, you know, how I should maybe write for them and, you know, incorporate some of the things I was writing, um, you know, before moving to Philly. So yeah, it was a combination of a lot of things going into that band and the resulting sound is I think pretty new, pretty unique. Um, it swings a lot, um, which is not always the case for the music I write, but I thought it was really appropriate for that band. Can you describe what that word swings means? Yeah. Swing, uh, mainly applies to the, the drum and bass feel, um, and the consistency of, uh, like the the triplet feel that is always present in in jazz uh mm. the genre of swing music um like 1920s big bands uh and the concept of swing kind of comes a little bit before that even but yeah when you listen to jazz uh and especially pay attention to um jazz rhythms and jazz eighth notes you're thinking about swing the the ride symbol, dang, dang, da, dang, dang, da, dang, dang, da, dang. That record does that a lot. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, that's another uh, parallel with cinema. It almost sounds like the process of finding what this album is saying was almost like casting right. a film crew because yeah and and artwork is going to work so much better if you tailor the writing whether it's music or a script to fit the personalities of the players absolutely um i've never thought of that before thought about that yeah that's a great point (laughs) um that reminds me of uh a great swing era composer duke ellington um he he wrote for his band and he was working with a big band of like 15 people. Um, so literally on his parts that he would write out, um, he wouldn't write trumpet one, trumpet two, trumpet three. He would write the guy's name. Aww, uh, yeah. you know, That's so uh, sweet. Cootie Williams was his lead trumpet player. I hope I'm right about that. My jazz history is going to be tested if I keep <laughs> talking about 1920s jazz, but, um, yeah. So he would, he would write people's names on their parts, which I've actually done before. Uh, I don't do it as much anymore for whatever reason. Maybe it's because I'm not, I'm playing with so many different people all the time, but. Mm. Can you remember, uh, how you wrote for Sandy, not knowing him too well, but starting to figure him out? Yeah. Well, Sandy's a really, really great improviser, especially when he has the spotlight to himself. So, um, he's, uh, the only player on the record besides myself who has like a, a freely improvised solo. Um, ah. he, he has an intro to the title track actually. That's, that's him playing, uh, the introduction to the track echoes. 
So um, I trusted him with that. And Sandy's got great ears and, and a great time feel. So, yeah, some of the harmony uh, that is present on that record is is what I like to describe as non-functional harmony, meaning it doesn't necessarily come from uh, 17th century European classical traditions or even uh, recent jazz traditions, but it's just kind of chord and then another chord and then another chord, and we have to make it work through other methods. Um, of improvisation it's it's not naturally functional but we can make it sound functional um hmm. sandy's really good at that um i think everybody in the band has become quite good at that yeah was there a really great period of flow that you remember when you were making this album either during the writing phase or actually the recording um Post-production was probably mostly, uh, I guess, John, Anthony. Yeah. Um, but yeah, any periods of flow, like where were you? What was your mental state? Were the other people involved? Actually, talking about post-production, that, uh, that was actually really fun. And the first time that I had ever done that in that way. So basically, John, Anthony, and I mixed the record remote. Um he oh. was at his computer and he shared his, his live computer sound, uh, with me. So we were on the phone and I was hearing, uh, his mix through my speakers. Um, and that went really well. Um, hmm. and, and it was a, it was a really good experience. And I, you, you mentioned flow. I think we were in flow for a lot of that. We we're like, Oh yeah, that needs to be louder. That needs to be softer and then we would listen to the whole take and said yeah that's sounding really good and then we might come back wow. to it later um and that was fun um god bless zoom i would have guessed that would be the least flowing <laughs> part of the process like can can you see my screen <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah luckily we were um we were far enough into the pandemic where <laughs> we, it was kind of the norm at that point because this was like summer of last year. Um, so uh -huh. we had already been doing that for a year. So it felt totally natural to jump on a computer and do something remote. Um, and that, that new thing of mixing an album just happened to work really well in that way. Mm -hmm. Thinking about like other parts of, creating the album uh the studio was really fun too um john engineered the whole thing and did an amazing job uh he set up microphones and gave us all our own individual mix um so that we could hear really what we wanted to hear in the studio so we all had headphones on and hmm. that's part of sound isolation is that um you kind of get your own mix in your headphones in the studio and that was fun too i remember uh we did probably three or four takes of most of the tunes, which is pretty standard. I, I definitely could have done more takes of some of the tunes, but I, I tried really hard to make myself move on. One, for time's sake, and two, because I know that, um, you know, there there's probably more good in a take than than what i experienced in the moment you know and it right. really took uh kind of sleeping on it and going back with a fresh set of years to um really 
uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, just accept the take for what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I really feel like I still know almost, well, I don't want to say I know nothing about jazz because you've taught me stuff about jazz, but the structure of forming bands is very new to me. So it's fun to see how it seems like groups of friends get together and play for each other uh, with a new person leading. Um, yeah. Like your friend Elliot, I think you played on his album. It's called Isms. Correct. Is that right? Yep. Um, so I wonder, yeah, what the stress of it is for the leader during the recording session with the balance of friends backing them up being like, no, dude, it was fine. Like, you killed it. <laughs> right, right. Um, so the stress of being the leader is that it's your show. Um, and you kind of have to, I mean, you have to lead people um, because it's your time. It's, well, it's their time too, but it's, in, in my case and with most cases, it's your money. Um, you know, you're paying mm. for that studio time. Um, so you have to get things done in, in the way. So sometimes it takes, you know, the, the hardest thing for me when I first started like leading bands and stuff was just like interrupting a conversation that people in my band would have and say, okay, let's move on to the next thing. I can do that really well now. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody shut up. We have to do another take. Um, and you know, you find that the better you get at that, the more people are just like, okay, cool. Awesome. Yep. Let's, mm -hmm. let's do it because they're, they're there for you. If they're, if they're there doing it, then, uh, it's because they respect you and they like you. Um, so it, it's not as hard as, uh, you might think it is. And I had, it took me a long time to convince myself of that. <laughs> mm. And this next question is a little dramatic and one I've been thinking about a lot recently and it ties into meeting people in college and how you're performing as an individual and a group. Um, okay. So what was your experience of both proving yourself and expressing yourself in college? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, um, I feel like they're kind of the same thing. Um, as long as you're honest about them. Uh, because if you are expressing yourself, then I think you're also proving yourself. Um, but if you are just trying to prove yourself, I feel like you might not be being a hundred percent honest about what you're trying to do, you know, as an mm -hmm. individual. Um, so for me, um, and the thing that was hardest for me at temple is that I was, I was more of a composer than like a jazz composer than a, a guy who was going to get up and absolutely shred at a jam session. Yeah. Um, and I had to really like stick to that in college. Um, if I was, uh, if I was going to do both of those things, express myself and, and prove myself. And I feel like I did. Um, I, I wrote a lot in college. In fact, most of that music I wrote while in, glad, in grad school at Temple. Um, and I feel like 
if I, if I wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have proved myself either. And do you think the composer role was more natural to you or it's just that your training leading up to it kind of put you in that slot? I feel like composing does come natural to me now. Um, I did not consider myself a composer at all uh, until like my probably my sophomore year of college at Western Michigan University, so like 2013. Um, okay. But then I, I had a teacher there, Andrew Rathman, who really encouraged me to start writing. Uh, and I started writing a lot and really loved it and like found a lot of purpose in it. Um, so, um, yeah, when I got to Temple, just the culture was a little bit different there. The, the values were a bit different there, which is cool. I wanted a different experience um, when I moved to Philadelphia and went to Temple in, in 2017. Uh, but it just took me a while to find a balance of, you know, composing for new players. I have to compose a bit differently. You know, there's a new, mm-hmm. I'm in a new scene. There's a new culture around that scene. Um, I might have to adapt a little bit to that. And I feel like I did. And I feel like this this record is a bit, is pretty representative of that. Mm-hmm. Did someone help you, I guess, feel good about yourself in the way that you spent more time writing rather than shredding like a rock star, <laughs> but also a person? Yeah, I guess just someone who accepted you but was a nice transition to Philly. Yes, lots of people, um, which is why I was able to do it. Um, the people in the bands, uh, almost across the board, um, helped me do that. Uh, and mm-hmm. also the person who produced the record, Norman David, um, he was also a teacher of mine at Temple. I think I said that. And, uh, I took composition lessons with him. Um, oh, okay. and, uh, he actually helped me workshop and write a little bit of this music. Um, another person at Temple, um, Ben Schachter, uh, he was the graduate coordinator my first year there, but then he retired by my second year, but, um, I feel like him and I had a really good relationship that first year and he was very encouraging of, of everyone there, uh, everybody Mm -hmm. in the grad department and, and what, what kind of unique things each person had to offer. Uh, I think that says more about him than it said about us. Um, but, uh, yeah, lots of encouragement, uh, in, in unexpected places for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. And my final sort of bigger question is based on a video that I watched of you at, is it called Cherry Street Tavern? Oh, yeah. With the Cross Currents Ensemble? Yeah. Um, You played a song that I think was also by one of your old professors called Fifth Anniversary. Yeah. So you introduced this song that was commemorating 9-11. What is his name? Who wrote it? Andrew Rathman. Oh, okay. So I thought it was interesting to say that a song is commemorating an event. I just hadn't heard that before. Mm. So I was wondering if Echoes of Thought is commemorating anything. Because it could be 
literally someone or an event like it was for him with 9-11, or it could be commemorating something abstract like a way of seeing the world that you wish was more prevalent. Mm -hmm. I feel like as artists, we're all kind of trying to show each other how we see the world. So was it commemorating anything? I don't think it was commemorating anything directly, uh, certainly not a specific event, but I feel like every album um, is commemorating. It's just a documentation of a, a certain place in a musical artist's career um, more than anything. Uh, And that idea actually helped me go through with making the album um, because I, you know, like it's normal uh, for somebody at my stage to say, well, why am I doing this? Why would I, why would I put out this music? Um, And the answer I came up with is, well, I work really hard at this and that deserves to be documented. Um, Mm. so in, in that sense, um, I wasn't thinking about selling a million copies. I mean, that was never going to happen, but I was thinking about documenting this music with that particular band that I really loved playing with. Mm -hmm. I loved playing that music. Um, uh, I loved the people in that band and the way they played. Um, and that meant something to me, uh, enough to, enough to make the album. That's so cool. It takes the pressure off when you think of it as yes. flipping back to a diary page or something. Absolutely. That I think will be very helpful for me. I'm like looking at this blank piece of paper on my desk, like what will this sketch commemorate? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I feel like, you know, finding different ways to take the pressure off, like you said, is a really important part of being an artist. Here's one that I use all the time that I also got from my old teacher, Andrew Rathbun. If we mess up, no one's going to die. We're not doctors. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if a doctor messes up, someone dies. If a lawyer messes up, someone could go to jail. If we mess up, you know, what happens? If our, What's the if worst our thing that is... could happen? <laughs> If our art is bad enough, then we lose money and we'll slowly die. That will be the person. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So if you're okay with that, um, you can make mistakes. Yes. Yes. Um, And mistakes are part of the process too. Um, I'm sure I could point out 20 on that record, but I won't. I'll make you find them. Go listen to it. (laughs) Yeah. So last two send-off questions. Number one, what would you recommend people listen to out of all your music first? It could be off the album or a YouTube video. Um, I do recommend listening to the album because I think it's a really good representation of me um, and lots of other really great musicians too. Um, I feel like my YouTube channel uh, is kind of uh, uh, a big hodgepodge of different things, which is also cool. Um, I have some classical music up there. Um, I have the projects that I've done with you up there, um, like my uh, uh, Felt Cute Might Delete Later, our our music and dance uh, and media collaboration. And uh, I have some like solo transcriptions, which are like super academic 
things up there. So um, actually, you know, that might be another good starting point actually is felt cute might delete later, especially because I just booked some things for the summer that are, that's going to involve uh, dance. Uh, my wife, Sarah is going to dance and hopefully Sam, but probably um, at least one other dancer um, with my, my new Chicago based trio, um, which I hope, I have more to say about soon. We premiered yeah. some new music of mine a couple of weeks ago, and it went quite well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and Michael has a Spotify, so you can find him there. Yes, uh, Spotify, Apple Music, um, Pandora. Do people use Pandora? I think it's on <laughs> Pandora. Uh, but I also have Bandcamp is the best way to support uh, new artists or any artist really. Um, Bandcamp uh, is a, a really great thing. All right, and is there a a song stuck in your head right now that you think people should go listen to? The song stuck in my head right now is one that I've been, a new one of mine that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, You can't listen to that yet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But let's see. Okay, stuck in your head two weeks ago. Stuck in my head two weeks ago that people should go listen to right now. Um. Well, one of my favorite musicians that's doing things right now is David Binney, a saxophonist who was in New York for like something like 40 years, but is now based uh, almost exclusively in L.A. His records pretty much flip-flop between uh, amazing improvised jazz and amazing electronic music that he makes. Um, mm. And his electronic music goes all over the place. You, you know, I think of electronic music and I have a specific sound in mind, but his, his really alternates between a lot of different things. So his album called Basu with the percussionist and drummer, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? I'm blanking. Check out David Binney's record Basu, um, which is a collaboration with another artist. Um, some really amazing stuff on there. Cool. B-A-S-U? Yeah. Okay. That sounds awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michael. That was really fun. Thank you, Jack. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for listening all the way through. Thank you, Michael and his bandmates. You can find the links to Michael's music, including the music video we worked on together, Felt Cute, Might Delete Later, in the show notes. Please share Cafe Ribbit with a friend. 